This is Mech's Design Talk, the podcast where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. It's our end-of-year review for 2016, and we're taking you on a journey through wearable tech and virtual reality, and on into our hopes for next year, from more home baking to privacy by design. Welcome to the Mech's Podcast. I'm Marek Pawłowski. I'm Alex Guest. I'm Patricia Bertini. Well, it is good to be back on the podcast together. Um, it's been quite the year uh, for all of us, I think. Obviously, we've had a huge amount going on within the Mex community. It wasn't so long ago that we were all together in London for the Mex 16 event. But I know it's been a busy year for you both with other projects as well. I mean, Patrizia, this is a year in which uh, you've changed uh, jobs, I believe. Exactly. It was a fun year. I started the year at Vipro, an Indian company, as director of research. But I wanted more challenges and I wanted to work more on strategies and developing the future and communities and social media strategies. So I moved to Lithium Technologies, where actually I'm having a lot of fun helping companies improve customer experience, uh, working on digital communities, social media strategies. It's a lot of fun. I'm enjoying it. Well, that's good to hear. I mean, what's the, the main difference compared to the role you were in previously? What's, what's been the biggest challenge for you to get up to speed with this year? Well, it was basically starting from um, a much more UX-based role. So it was much more about designing products and designing uh, experiences. And moving into focusing more on relationships and understanding how companies and customers interact and learn, how they are creating those relationships that actually create value for the user and for the company. And then moving much more into the social media space. So understanding the dynamics, understanding what are the expectations, what can be done with social media that actually helps everyone, helps the customer to get solution, to get answers, to get what they want from the product and service they're paying for, and what helps the company to basically learn more about their users. So it's not anymore about designing the experience of a product or service. It's about designing the experience of a relationship between brands and customers. Yeah, it, it seems like it's been a really interesting year for a lot of companies making that leap to understand that sort of social interaction actually as part of the complete loop of the overall experience design process rather than you know merely a, a function of their um, support or, or customer service. It sounds like a, a lot of progress being made there. Um, and Alex, uh, I know it has been a busy time for you as well with Zingy and the work you're doing in the world of startups. Um, what's the latest there? Uh, that's right, Mark. Yes, I um, well, at, you know, at the end of last year, uh, decided to get this uh, this business going, and um, have spent the majority of this year uh, really going through a, a sort of a product building phase. So, prototyping, uh, user testing, um, iterating. Um, and finally, getting a uh, market-ready product uh, out on the uh, iOS app store. 
Um, and uh, now going forward from from here, we're we're really looking to to actually build the the business and not just the product. So it's 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 entering into a new phase, um, which is uh, a whole category of uh, excitement beyond what we've done so far. Well, that sounds like good progress all round. Um, now we're recording this show in that wonderful sort of liminal period between Christmas and New Year, when it is. I guess, typical that people issue things like their predictions for the the year to come. But I know when we talked about this before, we weren't wildly keen on going down that particular path, but we thought it might be interesting to have a bit of an end of year review show. Uh, It's been a a big year for the MEX community. We've had our 16th MEX conference in London. We launched this new podcast where we've now had uh, 24. This will be our 25th episode of the podcast since we launched it in February of of 2016. So there's a lot to go back over. Um, But Alex, perhaps you could explain to people what we thought we'd do in this show and the concept we came up with and are going to try and go through over the next little while. Absolutely. And and, and just before I do, I I hadn't realized that this was the 25th one. Uh, That's um, actually astounding me as I I sit here. Yeah, Um, quarter of a century. Yeah, it's... it's, um, uh, it's, it's been great, I have to say. It just it just shows how, how much we've managed to pack into this year, to be honest. But so for, for this particular episode, uh, what we really want to do is is talk about um, a couple of experiences or experience design things that we've come across this year that have really grasped us. And and the idea is that we will uh, look at a couple of things each of us. Uh, one is one is to look at a, a specific digital experience design um, thing. And the other is to, to perhaps look at uh, slightly wider experience design issues and, and uh, you know, dive into, in, into you know, things that have really grabbed us on outside the digital sphere. What I was going to suggest was perhaps, Patricia, you might like to kick us off with, with one of your two experiences. Okay, sure. I mean, one of the most exciting things that I'm keen to get my hands on and I'm slowly getting that it's conversational UI. So it's a year of chatbots. Everything is about chatbots and artificial intelligence and how digital companies can benefit from adopting uh, this kind of conversational UI rather than having agents all the time answering the same questions over and over and how chatbots actually can improve the customer experience, the user experience, especially when you have a problem. And it's a recurrent problem, and you keep asking the same question. And because today everyone has a mobile, and everyone is using Messenger, there's absolutely a big, big explosion of chatbots. I mean, we have IBM Watson, which uh, has been adopted. We have a lot of both commercial and e-commerce-based applications, but also some very, very good uh, application for healthcare, psychological healthcare. So it's something that we start working on because when we talk about creating and designing the relationship and the experience between brands and uh, the customer, it's all about providing the best possible answer in the fastest possible way and in the way people want to interact. And people want to interact on their mobile, uh, sending messages and getting the answer straightforward. So is this something that you've come across uh, in your 
personal life, Patrizia, or, or is this mainly within the work that you're doing at Lithium at the moment? Like, have you been using these day to day for your own purposes? Well, I've always been fascinated by how a human can interact with a machine without knowing that it's a machine that's doing uh, experiments. And we all know Eliza, the first experiment from the 60s, that actually was an experiment made to prove if we want the point that actually the interaction with a psychotherapist was basic and didn't require the human to actually help people. Ever since artificial intelligence, technology, and everything evolved quite a lot, as a linguist, as my background, this was absolutely something fascinating. How can I be fooled that I'm talking to a machine? Well, actually, I'm talking uh, without not, not, not noticing, but actually not, not talking to a person. And this is absolutely interesting. And if you look around now, we can use bots for personal assistance. So there are a lot of products and companies that actually helps you to organize your, your day. Uh, Alexa, Amazon's Echo is a big, big success. I mean, they sold over 3 million uh, Echo in one year and a half, which is a big success. And this is all because all the technology improved. We can now talk and uh, now to recognize accents. Even my awkward Italian accent is recognized by uh, chatbots. And this is fascinating compared to what was when we used uh, voice interaction 10 years ago. This is just amazing. So I've been playing around with it. I've been trying to fool Alexa, or not Alexa, uh, Eliza for a while, and I find an interesting hobby to get into the loop with chatbots. Have you ever tried? <laughs> yes, I, I have tried a, a few different ones. I'm interested, what happened when you tried to uh, address Alexa as Eliza instead? Uh, never happened yet, but generally they don't answer. And Eliza tells you that she's not Alexa. And she's really, really, really picky. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I've been using um, mainly the ones based in Facebook Messenger, where various different companies have come up with these kind of uh, automated chat interfaces that you can work through. So there's one from the Wall Street Journal where you can ask it questions about things that are going on in the market, like different stock quotes and bits of news about particular companies. Uh, and then also another one as well, which is able to send you recipes depending on what kind of ingredients you let it know that you have or just a daily suggestion, uh, often based around like what's good for that particular season. Uh, and it has been an interesting experience, you know, seeing what that conversation feels like. I've got to say, at least with the Facebook Messenger ones so far, I haven't been um, particularly wowed by the experience, but it's been interesting in itself. What I have found, though, is that it ended up becoming something which I wanted to separate out from the conversations that I was having with real humans, like friends and colleagues and that sort of thing within Facebook Messenger. So I actually ended up uh, muting the alerts for the ones which were coming from the bots so that I knew then if I got a Facebook Messenger message from someone, it was actually from a real human because otherwise I found that I was getting rather too many of these inputs from the automated bots that wanted to talk to me at all times of day when I didn't necessarily want to talk to them. So that ended up being a bit of an interesting user experience for me. Um, have you guys come across any specific ones which you feel represent 
uh, yeah, a really good benchmark for the user experience of these kind of chat interfaces. I, I have to say, I haven't actually tried playing around with these things. I'm, you know, this is one of those areas where I feel it's too much like dystopia, and I don't want to go there. Um, you know, I, the, the whole you know, there, there, there's this story right now in in, in the news about uh, the um, the Amazon Echo uh, being used for um, as you know as evidence in, in a in a murder case, and um, people suddenly coming becoming aware of the fact that uh, these devices are listening to you the whole time, um, not just when you talk to them. Um, and and by listening, they're they're listening, and of course recording everything. It's not just uh, just a, uh, you know waiting for you to say Alexa or whatever else. So I think I think people are starting to become aware of of, of privacy concerns, and, and 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 this is one of the reasons why uh, these sorts of devices for me are just a, a no go. I, I I don't think I need an Alexa to be able to you know go out and buy groceries or whatever else. I think you know life is okay without them. It must be just the the I'm not really sure what the driver is for having these devices. I'm completely lost by it. I totally agree with you, Amen. I strongly distinguish between an Alexa voice interaction device, which actually capitalizes on impulses. I mean, Amazon is making a whole lot of money just because you think about something, you say something, and you get it delivered without checking or thinking. Uh, before doing any purchase, and the privacy concerns are crazy, and I totally agree. On the other side, when we talk about uh, assistants like uh, the various virtual assistants you can have where you text and use your mobile, that, act- that actually simplifies a lot of interactions. I mean, there's a pretty good one, it's called HANA, and it's basically a travel assistant. So whenever you have to, to travel, it helps you to book. It reminds you uh, your travel date and it keeps you updated all along the journey that you have planned. And it's really, really well done. It's uh, it's smart, it's easy, it's fast. And then we have a stupid application of very strong uh, technologies like IBM Watson. I mean, if you go on North Face, you can actually use and see a basic application of Watson uh, that actually helps you to buy a jacket. And I think that the biggest challenge today, and it's the challenge that I'm really trying to grasp, is designing an interaction, especially a voice interaction, a textual interaction, an interaction that is based on words, on on thoughts. It's totally different than a visual interaction because the logic that people may use to describe their problems or uh, the priority they may give when they describe their needs is not necessarily the same as when you see all the information on screen. So there will be a lot of really interesting challenges for people focusing on designing the user experience of messengers and uh, text-based chatbots because it's humans are unpredictable. So we need to take into account and try to define what is the logic and what are the right words that actually helps the user to help themselves. Yeah, that that I totally agree with. And actually, there was a story up on uh, mobileuserexperience.com 
last week, I think it was, where we were talking about this, uh, how this is influencing the hiring trends within the world of digital experience design. Uh, and you've got companies like Google who are now bringing on board people, for instance, who have worked at uh, animation companies like Pixar or people who've got screenwriting experience because they're starting to realize that actually this is a very different skill set from designing the kind of visual interfaces that we've been used to. And it's something which perhaps requires people with that background in uh, some of the you know more traditional principles of how you might interact within the world of theater or film or, or music rather than people have come from a, a strictly digital background which i think is going to lead to some really interesting changes so within the, the industry over the next little while um okay well that's a, an interesting one to to think about and see how that all works out over the course of the next year, Patrizia. Um, as you say, I think uh, you know some of the ones which are really making the headlines at the moment, like Watson and Alexa. We're going to be hearing a lot more about those over the next twelve months, and it'll be interesting to see what kind of examples they end up producing at the moment. Um, now, Alex, what was your uh, example that you wanted to start with? Do you want to start with your digital one or your one where there was more scope? Well, I think uh, your your conclusion there with with Google and and recruiting for for theatre etc. sort of segues nicely into into the world of VR. And uh, earlier this year, uh, as as listeners to to the podcast will know, uh, you and I went along to to um, to Tiger Spike and we played around with the HTC Vive, and that was truly an eye-opening experience for me. I think we've gone from a, a world where we're striving for engagement into a, a world where we're starting to strive for immersion, um, at, you know, something that's really beyond engagement. And um, just the other day, a couple of friends came back from a party and told me that the, the most fun aspect of the party was was playing around with a PlayStation VR set. Um, and, and, you know, there, there are a couple of things that, that came out of it from my experience at the HTC Vive, and, and one of the strongest ones was the emotion, the, the ability of, of you to physiologically feel things that are going on virtually. Um, and uh, within this scenario where, you know, standing in a castle, we're defending a castle with a burned arrow, and we're firing arrows at, at the enemy. By the end of that um, game, having reached the end of it, I, I actually had a genuine ache in my shoulder from from firing off arrows, and and somehow, physiologically, I'd, I'd experienced the the action of pulling the string of the bow and releasing arrow after arrow after arrow. And um, and I don't know whether it's because I've done some archery that my my body remembers what that feels like, or or whether it it, it you know it it just sort of somehow experienced that anyway. But that was quite a quite a strong feeling for me. And 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 one of these friends who'd been to this party said to me that they'd been on a on a roller coaster ride, and could feel their stomach turning as they went up and down, in, as though they actually had been experiencing that for real. And so that level of emotion for me is 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 um, absolutely staggering. And and I think we're getting to the point now where we will quite soon see VR uh, popping up in all sorts of places, and and not just in gaming. Um, yeah. So that's it's really very exciting. I'm actually a little jealous that you chose this one. I know when we were talking about this before the show, I was also keen on this as as one of my examples too, because it, it was it certainly fills that criteria of being a memorable and an extraordinary 
experience. Uh, and that day that we spent with Greg Taylor at Tiger Spikes, you know, it was something which did have quite a, a profound effect, I think, on the way we're thinking about the future of digital and what might be interesting over the next little while. But it, it's quite interesting as well, I think, to consider maybe what has changed because some of this stuff isn't especially new. I mean, VR headsets as a concept go back, you know, decades now. We've seen them in various different forms. And even more recently than that, there have been ones which have emerged in the last couple of years, which have been interesting, but maybe didn't quite have the same experiential impact that the Vive did when we, we tried it out. And yeah, I think that point you make about the level of physical immersion is a really important one. There's something that they've got right in the physics of it now, which just makes it feel real for people so that you do actually feel like your body is engaged with it and your mind is engaged with it in a way that, that generates the kind of memorable experiences that obviously you had off, off the back of that day and your friends had at that party. I mean, were there particular things that you could point to and isolate in your mind which which made you feel like this was something that had reached that that next level yeah ab absolutely i mean I, and i think you're, you're right to point out it's not the first time that this has happened but i think um uh, part of what's going on is that you know in your peripheral vision it's 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 seamless so it's all one world that you're in um so that in itself is not brand new because we've had headsets before but you have got proper um full uh, full scope of, of vision so it's not looking at a screen and i think that's important um but linked to that now is that the quality of i guess the the processing algorithms and the hardware have, have reached a point where um you can d deliver um uh, imagery you know effectively directly to the brain that um th that is is on cue with your actions with your hands that is not pixelated in any way and of course we're not yet talking about proper um images here this is this is not photographic quality it doesn't look like human beings but there's no there's no pixelation of any kind that you know that you have the lines are smooth and and the the movement is smooth um, and and works in a, in a lifelike way so you have acceleration and deceleration and movements that are that are real uh, and and there's no uh, there's no break between um taking an action and that being realized within that virtual world so i think i think for me those are important plus the quality of the sound with the htc vive um i'm you know i i i don't know enough about sound to be able to say exactly what's going on there but it's it's of that really good cinematic quality um where where you feel the sound moving around uh, depending on your position and your movement and so forth. So I think um, those for me are the, are the two absolutely key factors. Now, Patrizia, I know one of your interests has always been in this field of embodied cognition. Uh, I know with the work you do, for instance, with the Lego Serious Play facilitation, yeah, that's something which plays a, a big role in that. Do you think there's something in this, in the sense that, yeah, with something like the HTC Vive, which I don't know if you've you've had a chance to use that one yourself yet, but they have managed to get that physical connection between what you're doing with your hands and what you're then seeing manifest as a vision in front of your eyes. They've they've got that connection in a very smooth and realistic way. Is that something you know when you consider those principles of embodied cognition that is is crucial to getting us to really be able to believe the experiences that we're seeing with these kind of virtual reality systems? Well, I haven't tried virtual reality, um, not certainly at the level you have, but certainly 
we, we keep talking about fooling uh, ourselves uh, about something else. So chatbots, fooling ourselves, we're talking to a real person, fooling ourselves, we're experiencing something that it's not physically there. So it's interesting that it's kind of the reality we have is not enough. We want to enhance what we have. And yes, we, we are just trying to get our body and our mind in a different state where they are naturally. And in all honesty, I'm really, really keen to see what are the consequences. So how can we either learn something or increase our ability to understand, to empathize, to have different kind of applications beyond the entertainment one? Because I'm, I'm sure you know, now we have a 4D cinema as well. So when we talk about the immersion, when is enough and when is too much? I haven't tried the 4D cinema yet, but I've been talking to the clients who, who went there and they, they watched the latest uh, Star Wars movie and they said, yeah, but it was too much because you're just moving, your seat is moving, there are smells and everything. So the question is, where should we stop? When is too much? And how the body and the mind that are really intertwined and connected, uh, can be connected and disconnected from these virtual and real uh, domains. I think that we will see in 10 years a lot of interesting studies that will tell us how mind and body can be triggered and take the most of it, or if there's any dangers or any side effects we're not aware yet. Yeah, that's, that's, you know, that's a very interesting point. And um, I, I know there's some quite positive things going on in the health tech uh, arena that are making um, good use of uh, this embodied cognition. And, and there's, there's one thing in particular that, uh, that really struck me as being quite powerful and, and a very good use of VR that I heard about this year. Um, and it was actually at a, at a talk earlier this year, I had uh, Molly Courtney of, of Mindwave Ventures um, that we've previously mentioned. And, and um, um, she was talking about um, exposure therapy for children with uh, obsessive compulsive disorder um, and, and using VR in a gradual way to, to help children become comfortable in um, in situations where they might not otherwise have been comfortable, and there was one particular example that uh, that she showed, which was um, a, a bathroom uh, where you know children expect uh, children with OCD expect extreme cleanliness, and and trying to get them comfortable with different levels of dirtiness within a bathroom. And um, what was interesting about using VR is that you can. Uh, first of all, create different scenarios quite quickly and allow the child to become comfortable uh, through these different stages, but also to actually observe the reactions. So it's a two-way two-way process, and and you observe the reactions both through the the, the headset, but also by using uh, certain wearables with biosensors. So you so you know how how hard you can push, how far you can push, um, and and you know to what extent the child is. Is, is reacting in a way and, and learning to to accept certain conditions. So f- for me, that was you know a very very positive way of, of using um, uh, VR within within the mental health arena. Well, and it picks up on yeah a macro trend that we've talked about in previous episodes of the podcast this year as well about this notion of digital experiences 
crossing that chasm between being things which maybe can track uh, or diagnose particular conditions to actually being things which are able to treat certain conditions. And you know, if that's one of the first, um, if you like, industrial uh, or you know, um, business uses of uh, virtual reality, then that sounds to me like a, a very positive thing to be able to take it into that world of um, actually helping people to improve their physical or, or their mental health. You know, that that sounds like quite interesting progress. Yeah, and I think there there are lots of other health uh, examples that are that are popping up. So, g- given uh, the extent to which uh, healthcare needs new solutions for for you know growing population issues, um, I, I think uh, VR will 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 play an important role. So that's for me, that's just fantastic. I do wonder about you know some of those things you were touching on, Patricia, about you know, how much is too much as to whether or not some of these factors that people are experiencing, and I'm hearing the same thing as well when I'm talking to users about their personal experiences of this at the moment, that sometimes they experience things like motion sickness or the sense that it's distracting them from, say, a piece of content you know, that they're watching within the virtual world. You know, These are real issues at the moment that uh, the first users of these devices are citing. But I wonder how many of those are things which are overcomable, eventually versus those which actually are fundamentally at odds with the way humans behave. I mean, to give an example, um, I was talking to someone in the family over Christmas who's actually working on developing uh, a VR game at the moment in the, the work that he does. Uh, and he was talking about some of the things which he's experienced at a very practical level as he started to develop games for this new platform, where there are issues around, for instance, um, the angle that you position things within the virtual world relative to the horizon line and that causing things like neck ache for people. Now, that to me feels like something which is quite fundamental. Um, you know, yes, I suppose you might be able to contort your body over time to accept a certain kind of angle of vision for your your neck. Um, but for most people, you know, that's going to be the sort of thing which needs to be solved within software. There needs to be some kind of smart adaptation to make sure that whatever it is you're looking at within the virtual world or your main focus appears within a comfortable horizon line. But then there may be other things, you know, perhaps at more of a sort of cognitive level where actually our minds can get used to them. But it's just that because it's so new at the moment, um, they feel very overwhelming. But that's something that we will adapt to. I don't know what that balance will end up being. Well, you know, the scenario that you just described actually requires not only software develop- development and design skills. It goes well beyond the traditional design thinking paradigm and it goes into system thinking. Because you need to think about the person as a whole with a neck. So this is when you need support from someone who understands physiology and the human body and the posture to ground that actually the digital experience is not damaging. As you were saying, uh, the physical body, it doesn't create some conditions that actually are not foreseen now because if we keep focusing only on design thinking, on the solution, on the design and creative approach, and we leave out the everything else, the system, which is the body, because all the design elements and the experiential elements focus on the cognition, we may create problems. And I think that the other thing that needs consideration is how addictive this technology could be. 
I mean, we, we all read 10, 15 years ago, uh, about teenagers getting addicted to, uh, online and, um, role playing games, uh, to the point to get sick, not eating for days and not sleeping. Now, that was a really engaging and immersive environment, but virtual reality could be a hundred times more immersive. And so how we really tackle and make sure that we don't end up creating a generation of people that actually are totally addicted to virtual world and are not comfortable anymore or not at the same level. Yeah, I think that overall point about the importance, the growing importance of system thinking with this kind of experience design um, is just going to become more and more amplified as the year goes on. And it's actually something I was thinking about um, in some depth in relation to the example that I wanted to cite for the the digital experience. And I've got to admit, I, I had real dilemmas over this one as to whether or not it was an experience I could really cite because it's not been without its its difficulties for me. Um, so it's certainly been a memorable experience, but maybe not one which is yet of extraordinary quality. Um, but I wanted to talk a bit about Android Pay. Um, and actually, I think you know we could also include Apple Pay within this as well, because it's more about the concept of what's being achieved here uh, and the complexity of the systems that have now been put in place to enable what for me was quite a watershed moment that now I'm able to go into the majority of the stores that I frequent and make a payment within a matter of seconds using my phone. Now, for someone who's been involved in this area of mobile for you know some <laughs> some considerable length of time now, I can remember actually 20 years ago writing a story about the very first mobile banking technology, which was running on one of the Scion organizers connected over a a dial-up modem, uh, and it had a screen which replicated the look of a paper check on there, and you're able to send these very basic payments back and forth. To have finally got to the point where I can go around to my local store and make a seamless, contactless transaction to pay for something feels like a real watershed moment that we've finally achieved this year. And going back to your point about the importance of system thinking, Patricia, this is something which simply couldn't have happened if all of those different components within the system hadn't finally managed to get their act in order to create that overall user experience. And in this case, the the main um, agitators within that, I guess, have been Google and Apple to actually really put in the hard work to make sure that all of those little minute details which are required to make all of that big system work together have finally been ironed out so that people all over the world now can go and experience those kind of payments through their mobile devices. Well, it's interesting that you should say all over the world. And it, it is mostly a system system uh, issue. But but actually, there appears to be also some, some cultural barriers. Um, now, uh, Patrizia, I know that, that you're Italian, but I was, I was speaking to another uh, Italian colleague of mine um, who uh, lives in a, in a rural part of Italy. And um, the concept of... Uh, what we refer to as contactless payment 
was uh, quite extraordinary when he tried to, he tried this at a, at a, at a store recently. Uh, and even more extraordinary was the idea that you could actually pay with your mobile phone. Um, and while for us this has been gradually creeping, we've known about it. It's come onto the onto our horizons, and eventually it's arrived. Um, for 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 the uh, for the woman who was taking the payment on on this card machine, um, this was a moment of magic. Um, so well, perhaps it didn't feel extraordinary to you, Marek. It certainly does to people who have never experienced anything of the kind before. Well, it's interesting you call it magic. Do you think this was good magic or, or bad magic in her eyes? Well, I, I think it, it was just a moment of, of wow and, and um, nothing, you know, no reason why it should be bad. It was just, wow, that's incredible. And we are, and, and, and the thought was then that, um, that where they were living was, you know, decades behind uh, in technology terms to, to what Italians in London were experiencing. But but we're talking about a rural community here, so I I, I can't really talk about Italy as a whole. Um, just this just this particular place. Well, no, I think it's a point very well made, and I mean where I live is also a, a rural area, and it's been really interesting to see the reaction um, of people, for instance, who are behind the checkouts in the local store to the rollout of this kind of technology, and there was very much that sort of sense of hang on a second, this is some kind of witchcraft going on here when it was first introduced and they had to have their payment terminals upgraded and, and all that sort of stuff to, to make it happen. Uh, and yet, and in fact, there's a, a user story up on mobileuserexperience.com which recounts um, some of this this particular happening. Um, what I started to notice was the speed at which the people behind the checkout, despite them all being people who have lived and worked most of their lives in a rural area, who probably themselves are not necessarily used to the latest technology, the speed at which um, they started to adopt this and actually started to prefer this over other methods of payment because it was faster and crucially, it didn't require them to wait to print out a receipt and hand it over to the person. Because when you do one of these contactless transactions up to a certain value, the receipt is optional, as opposed to being something that you have to give the customer. Um, it actually got to the point quite rapidly where they were sort of surprised and a little bit huffy if someone tried to pay, for instance, with cash, or someone wanted to do the chip and pin where they put their card in and enter the pin number, because it took longer for them to process. Uh, and I was really surprised by this, because when it was first introduced, it had all the hallmarks of this being something that was going to take forever for the people who worked in the, the store to accept. But actually, they started to embrace it pretty quickly. Well, if it makes life better, and, and I suspect also that they've had some amount of communication, uh, whether from the, the the card machine provider or you know, um, uh, or, or the or the uh, their, their merchant or, or or probably a whole host of different people, including their banks, that that has advised them of the benefits of using uh, the, the the contactless payment. So 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 I, I I guess you know at that point people will will ad adopt these new technologies. Uh, very quickly and with delight. I mean, if you know, who, who doesn't want to have an easier life? Well, the, the cultural point is a really interesting one. And Patrizia, you know, I know you um, spend time in both the UK and Italy. Uh, are you picking up on these kind of cultural nuances in, in relation to this this payment technology, whether Android Pay or, or Apple Pay, just the, the concept of, of mobile payments in general? 
Absolutely. I mean, I'm also half Hungarian and I can see the three stages of evolution. London, where every, everything and everyone is about convenience, not having to carry too much, being fast, efficient. And this is where using uh, mobile payments is absolutely key. It's convenient, it's fast. Italy, which I would say it's about a couple of years, two, three years behind, not that much, perhaps less, depending if you go to Milano or in rural areas, where the phone is still not considered uh, a mean to pay, so there's still some kind of wait and see compared to Hungary, which uh, even Budapest is extremely behind, I would say four, even five years behind, where just very, very few early adopters would actually attempt to pay with Google Pay if they only could find sufficient number of uh, places for that actually accept them. So th there's still both generational differences also infrastructure differences, so 4G in UK, 4G in Italy are working well. In UK, we're going to, towards 5G. In Hungary, you're still on 3G. And we are still talking about Western society. We're still talking about Europe. We're still talking about developed countries. So we, we always have this kind of bias, but yes, there's still quite, quite a lot of dissidents. No, absolutely. I mean, those, those sorts of... Um, factors around the the etiquette of it and you know the the particular relationship you have with the individual stores where you want to, to use this I mean they all come into play and I mean that's I guess the reason why I was hesitating to cite this as an example despite the fact that I think it is a really significant moment that this is starting to enter the mainstream it's not been without its difficulties I mean I personally have experienced problems with this there was one occasion when for some reason i think it could have been that the app had the android pay app had updated itself in the background overnight and it had forgotten the card that i'd stored within it so when i went to make a payment for this i ended up being you know that flashy idiot essentially at the front of the queue holding up everyone else as i put my phone to the reader expecting this was going to be another you know one second very slick looking transaction and actually then end up being the person who stood there explaining oh, you know, oh dear it's lost my card i can't do this etc etc and you know it's a moment of of real embarrassment yeah there's still that thing i think when firstly you know being British and being someone who's holding up a queue, I mean, you know, that that's a massive <laughs> issue right there. Secondly, you know, when it's something to do with money, you know, there's there's something which heightens the sense of of importance around it for most people, I think. So, you know, it, it's not been a 100% smooth experience yet with Android Pay, um, but they are doing a few things in the background, I think, to try and... Um, overcome that and get people into the habit of using this for instance in the run-up to christmas they've been doing this scheme where every time you use android pay for a transaction you get given a christmas cracker a virtual christmas cracker which you can then open on your phone uh, at a later date and it tells you whether or not you've won a prize um, so i've noticed that it's actually been adjusting 
my behavior where I now actually feel quite pleased if I realize that there's something that I've forgotten at the store so I can go back and, you know, make another Android Pay transaction because I know that I'm going to get another Christmas cracker and perhaps win, you know, one of their prizes, which aren't exactly anything to write home about. But there's definitely that sort of game mechanics that goes into it, um, which Google have obviously cleverly picked up on with this to realize that if they can get people into the habit of using this every time, then it's something hopefully which will stick with them, uh, even when there are those sort of teething troubles, which I guess are inevitable with the rollout of any new technology. So, so the idea then is to go and do your grocery shopping and pay for each item separately. That's it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably one of the reasons why I've become you know, much less popular at the local store as I come up with, you know, one apple at a time, one orange at a time, and gradually work my way down the list. But hey, you know, I'm sure they'll get used to it. <laughs> So, so Merrick, um, let, let, let's work in, in reverse order. And, and um, what's um, what's day to day non digital experience have you had that's really stood out for you this year? Okay, well, well, this one actually, Alex, you did get a bit of a sneak preview of. I'm not sure if you realised this was the one I was going to choose, but you did get to see the results of it the other day when we got together in London. So, um, I was taking my regular train into London the other day and you know it was a grey cold morning at the train station um, I wouldn't say that Christmas cheer was necessarily running especially high with the prospect of you know yet another crowded commuter train into London to take uh, and for anyone you know, out there in the UK who has been commuting regularly this year um, people will know that it's not been an especially fun year for commuters particularly those in the south of England given the problems with strikes and so on on the trains but as I walked to get onto the train, um, there was an actual real human station attendant at the train station. And he walked up to me and he looked me in the eye and said, Merry Christmas, and handed over a little cardboard box which had toy trains and, and winter scenes painted on it. Uh, and in that moment, that very sort of small, you know, really quite insignificant gesture in the grand scheme of things. I really smiled to myself because in that little moment, I could feel all of that sort of frustration, I guess, ill will, which has built up over a year of hot, overcrowded trains starting to ebb away. And that actually there was a sense for the first time of a kind of human connection with that train company. Um, so I got on the, the train and had a look at this box which they'd given me uh, and all around me on the train I could hear other people doing the same thing. There were a couple of teenage girls behind me who you know, were really quite excited opening up this little box to see what was inside and it turned out that there were just um, a handful of these little chocolates which had been styled as little snowmen inside the box and then across the train on the other aisle there was a family getting on who seemed to be on their way into London maybe for a Christmas shopping trip and it was two parents and their three kids and you know I would guess they'd probably spent the best part of a hundred pounds on train tickets for that day out and yet I could hear the mum saying to her kids like oh aren't we lucky what a treat this is you know and pointing to the little box as they looked in it and it was such a simple gesture but 
in the way they structured it, in the fact that they actually had a real human there to wish people Merry Christmas, the fact that they'd chosen this quite playful packaging for it, and crucially that it was an unexpected thing at a time of year when I suppose everyone is kind of in that mode of um, looking for a little bit of seasonal magic, a little bit of festive magic to, to brighten up the, the, the season for them. Um, there was something which just worked about it. So I've ended up choosing rather bizarrely, this little cardboard box of chocolates as my most memorable customer experience moment of 2016. But that's again connected with the whole, we are getting so digital that we appreciate the materiality, the physicality of a gesture, of a person, of an object, even if it's just a cardboard. It's just because if you think 15 years ago, we were excited every time we got an email. Now we got surprised when we get, hey, it's a real letter, a card, a Christmas card. I received Christmas card and I was super excited because it's so rare. Actually, people take the time to write and actually give their thoughts and their greetings. I think that's a really good point, Patrizia. It's that that scarcity of these things which really... um, made sure it had such an impact Uh, and the fact that it was so unexpected in that particular environment I think that's probably what made me you know smile about it so much was that we've become used to the idea of train stations and train carriages being these sort of uncivilized places places where there's a kind of unspoken conflict between the passengers and the train company even passengers and other passengers because you're all vying for you know a limited number of seats and some people know that you know they're going to be the ones who don't end up getting to to sit down that in an environment like that this kind of very um human friendly gesture was so unexpected that it probably had um, much more impact than it might have, have otherwise done. Yeah, and, and and I think one of the one of the takeaways for me from this year really has been um, small, unexpected gestures, small, unexpected moments uh, of delight um, that are are simple and and in the in and of themselves really don't add up to add up to a great deal. Seem to have far greater importance. Than, um, that, than they really ought to have, just because they are unexpected and, and just a little bit delightful. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I remember um, one of the previous examples you cited in an earlier podcast, Alex, about um, that uh, integration that there was between the Foursquare places on your phone and writing a message where it remembered what you'd searched before so that when you started typing a message, it automatically inserted it, which in the grand scheme of things is a tiny little convenience um, within the overall user experience. And yet it was something that I remember you being quite excited about. It, it has continued to delight me, I have to say. <laughs> I, I've, been, I've been arranging many more occasions to meet up with people in random places as a result. <laughs> well, there we go. I guess the, the proof is in the pudding. Um, Okay, so we're going in, in reverse order. So I guess that means that you should go next, Alex. What, what was the experience that you wanted to cite from the wider world? Well, I, I, I've been struggling actually with, with coming up with the, the uh, absolute experience. But I, but I have to say this, uh, earlier this year, Marek, um, I, uh, I discovered, thanks to you, the joy of bread making. And um, the, um, you know, let's, let's, I mean, just 
briefly thinking about bread, you know, you go to a bakery, you buy bread, and then later in life, you know, there, there, there's this, you know, there's even uh, uh, there's the saying, you know, it's the best thing since sliced bread, and, and you know, the 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 automation of of bread making and this and, and the recipes that have been adapted so that bread stays fresher for longer, etc., etc., um, have for me taken a little bit of joy out of bread. I have to say, and and suddenly learning how to bake bread. Uh, as a result of discovering that you also were a, a bread maker, has 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 brought uh, a, a little bit of excitement to me on on a, on a weekly basis. Um, now, I, I I should stress here that I don't just you know stick all the ingredients in a bread maker and wait for it to to make itself because that that would be exactly the antithesis of what I'm looking for here. It's it's a personal experience that is part creative, part uh, somehow magical, and also actually a little bit physical. So. You know, you, you start off by mixing up the ingredients and then you get kneading. And, and kneading is can be quite hard work depending on, on, on the sort of flour you're working with um, and, and, you know, how long it's going to take to, to actually get it to a point where you can uh, let it rise. And, and gradually over this period of time, some of it when it's just doing its own thing, some of it when you then get involved with it again, um, you, you go from having these, this, this, you know, this white powder flour and a little bit of yeast and some water and so on. And it turns into a delicious loaf of bread, um, and that's a little bit of uh, magic that that um, that, that I, I treat myself to once a week, even though it'd be much quicker for me just to pop down the road and buy some. Yeah, that's an interesting way of of describing it. That you know, it's something that you treat yourself to. Uh, I mean, I think it's always um, interesting with these these overall experiences, and this is something we do in the area of, of digital experience design as well, uh, is to kind of deconstruct them by considering what happens if you take away various elements to be able to understand which are the parts that really make it that significant for you. And in fact, it was a process that we were taken through at uh, the MEC16 event by the um, people from Flying Object when they ran that workshop for us on multi-sensory design to really get into thinking about the individual components of the experience that make up the, the overall. I mean, when you think about that, that bread bake experience, um, are there particular parts of it that you think you could take away and still end up having an experience that was as satisfying overall? Um, or is it something which requires every one of those components to be working in, in unison with each other? Well, I, 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 I suppose you can't really take away too many elements from, from bread making because otherwise you don't end up with bread. And, and um... Yeah, or you end up with very flat bread. <laughs> well, that, uh, but I mean, true. for instance, you, you mentioned there like the, the bread making machine. I mean, that would be one option here. You know, you could, um, yeah, there's a sliding scale, I guess, between going to the store and buying pre-made bread versus making it entirely from scratch yourself versus somewhere in the middle, you know, using a bread making machine, which, you know, some people also find very satisfying as well. But, you know, where for you um, does the needle need to be set with that experience to make it something which, as you describe, you, you treat yourself to? Well, I, I think it's taking away as much as possible of the technology, to be honest, um, so that as, as little is done by other things, um, you know, it's only really the last bit where I stick it in the oven uh, that that I'm I'm, I'm using um, some other sort of device. Uh, so, and even there, really, yes, I, I have an electric oven, but you know, I could have a, a it could be a fire. Um, it, it's it's the multiple aspects. Partly, 
Um, it's it's the mixing up of the of the ingredients and measuring them out, followed by um, the slightly messy start to kneading, and then the slightly physical aspect, um, which you know which I enjoy anyway. Lots of physical activities, um, and and then and then you know without getting too too technical into into bread making here, but you know the once you start seeing it rise and then you knock it back and take the air out of it and, and you know there's a certain amount of joy of that and then shaping it so that you're you're bringing i guess different parts of the brain into play here and 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 the end result uh where and, and i have to say that once once now that i've figured out how to make decent bread it it, it tastes a lot better than what i what i can get uh from from the bakery and i and i can play around with it and it'll be really good um well, it perhaps goes back to Patrizia's point earlier about you know the that sense of when something is scarce uh, in our lives, um, it ends up becoming that much more important experience when you do actually get a taste of that. And you know, I'm guessing with the the work that you do, probably like many people listening to this podcast, um, there's a lot of it which is happening within the mind and in a, a virtual sense, and there's not much in the way of tangible physical output from it. So getting to do something like this, which engages so many other senses, uh, maybe a bit like some of those, those VR experiences that we tried out earlier in the year as well, when you're able to combine those kind of multiple senses together, it feels like something a, a little bit extraordinary. Um, Patrizia, I know you're um, keen in the, the kitchen as well. Have you had similar experiences with um, with making other things? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the sensuality of music and having your hands dirty. And basically, we go back to embodied cognition, connecting hands and brain, because you have to use your hands and you are getting dirty, which is something that is, uh, when we were kids, we said, no, you don't get dirty. You have to have your hands clean. And you just need and you have this physical sensual experience of touching something and working out. And your mind is connected to that, so it actually allows you. I mean, I always have ideas when I'm cooking or having a shower, and this happens to everyone. Mm. It's not just something for me. Everyone always has the best ideas when they're not working. Because that's when actually you're using your body and your mind, and you capitalize on lateral thinking, on the subconscious. And it's a fantastic creative activity. So I totally understand the passion uh, Alex has for, for needing because I, I do it as well. And it's really relaxing. It's nice. Yeah. Well, I'm seeing an opportunity to join up some of these things here. I mean, if we're having our best ideas when we've got our hands full with other things like bread baking, if we can just combine that with some of these smart voice interfaces that we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, then you know, really the world is our oyster at that point. You know, if you can be coding an app through using your voice while you're in the midst of bread baking, I mean, that that surely is the, the perfect storm right there. Yeah, we just need to make sure we protect the intellectual property and we tell Alexa that this is our intellectual property. And that's <laughs> not Excellent. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to get onto that and work that into the next version, I think. Um, okay, Patrizia, so we've each given an example. Is there anything that you've um, really found memorable this year from the, the world at large as an experience? Well, I would go back to something so similar to yours because it was a totally unexpected card I received by one shop. So this is something very stupid. And then uh, I buy my vegetables and my meat all organic. 
from farm drop. It's a website. It's fantastic. And I'm absolutely loyal customer. And they send me a handwritten card. It's an eco card that actually you can put in, into the compost and it will give you flowers. And I find that so, such a delightful idea, so unexpected, because a shop that sends out a handwritten card. So as you were saying, it was kind of totally unexpected. I mean, I was already excited to get cards from a few friends. But getting this so thoughtful and so rare and so, so special. So it made me feel a special customer. I was already a happy customer. I'm even happier now. But, uh, and I think that that's probably the, the highlight I can give. Because in all honesty, Marek, I had a provocation for a listener. Because I need some answers. And I know that a lot of smart people are listening to this. So perhaps they can help me. Can okay, I go, go, go ahead. What's on your mind? Okay, I'm upset about wearable technology. I mean, I keep reading how all smart, kind of smart watching sales are dropping. People are not using them. People are not making the most. And I use Flipboard. I read on Twitter. And I try to keep track of any really innovative technology that actually goes under the title of wearables. And actually, there's nothing. It's all about smartwatches, Pokemon Go on, uh, on smartwatches, uh, new fitness health application on smartwatches, but there's no killer app. So I keep thinking that perhaps technology went ahead to the point that actually we have the technology to have something on our wrist, so small and portable, but we don't have any killer app, anything that actually makes us so so close as we are to our mobile. So I was wondering, can someone prove me wrong and tell me what is the killer app for wearables and smartwatches? Well, I think that's an excellent challenge and it would be great to hear from listeners about that. Uh, you can get in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is at mexfeed uh, or drop us an email, which is designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. Uh, and I'm right there with you on this, Patricia. I think um, we've been disappointed generally as a, a, an industry with what's happened around wearables, that smartwatches don't feel like the answer um, to this, you know, there are some people clearly who are enjoying using them, and you know, the Apple Watch in particular seems to be quite popular with those who have it. Um, but it doesn't feel like the brave new frontier that is possible with with wearables. That the one thing which I've seen, which has caught my interest in this area, is what Google were working on about a year or so ago around some of the smart fabrics that they developed within one of their uh, sort of lab units uh, within Google to assume their experimental stuff. Uh, but we haven't really seen that come to any sort of commercial conclusion with, with real products reaching the market yet. So it feels like there is a, a real opportunity out there to do something more interesting uh, around wearables. Yes, I think so. And, and uh, there, there are a number of organizations, uh, small and large, that are playing around with um, smart fabrics, biosensors, and, and various other things. And, and I suspect at some point this, this sort of uh, collective uh, wearable soup uh, will, will, will deliver um, you know, something that is steamingly good, hopefully. Um, 
So, uh, yeah, it might be 2017 when it happens. It might be a little later down the road, but let's see. And, and, and perhaps, um, perhaps someone will take up uh, your provocation, Patricia, and, 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 and give you that, that killer app. Well, that, that's one hope, certainly, for the next um, 12 months or, or so. Um, I always feel around this time of year that uh, it's a bit futile to try and predict what's going to happen within digital industry over the next year. You know, for those who are working within the business, you kind of already know that everything that's going to happen within the next year is, is pretty much already decided. So if you're not party to that yet, then you certainly will be over the next little while. Um but maybe, you know, we could try and finish out on a couple of our hopes for what may happen within the next little while, even if it's uh, a bit of a fool's hope, something that's unlikely to happen. You know, what are the things that we'd really like to see improve within the world of digital experience design in the next 12 months? Um, you know, clearly some more interesting things around wearables um, would be a, a very interesting start but alex is there anything in particular that you know you feel if we were looking back at this time next year that you'd really like to have seen happen within that time i, I think um going back to something that patricia was saying uh some some more joined up thinking around system design so that um different uh bits of software different applications work uh, and more devices work more intelligently together and, and we don't get some of the slip-ups that we start to see occasionally um, going back to to Alexa and and various other devices I know there have been some amusing moments when people have mentioned Alexa on a TV program and all around uh, you know all around the country people's uh, Alexa devices have have suddenly come to life um, so uh, you know, there's there's some there's some thinking to be done around around that sort of thing, and and, and getting uh, deeper thinking about how these things can work together. Yeah, agreed, and and that feels like something which is only going to become more pressing uh, as time advances. I mean, that the complexity now of some of these digital experiences, and in particular as they start to become more multi-sensory. Um, I think that's going to place a real emphasis on that need for, for joined up thinking. I mean, that was certainly something which came out of that experience that we had with uh, the virtual reality um, kits earlier in the year is the sense that it's a whole different level of experience design. Once those experiences start to unfold within real physical space around you rather than just within virtual space. And what about you, Patrizia? I mean, beyond um, wearables, is there anything that you would like to see, you know, either in terms of the way our methods uh, or, or particular technologies or products advance over the next little while? What's on your wish list? On my wish list, uh, there is implementation of privacy by design. Uh, one thing that uh, really, really worried me was the release of an app called Find Face. Basically, you can take a picture uh, on the street of everyone, and within minutes, this app is telling you who that person is. As Alex was saying, uh, tools like, uh, like Alexa are eroding privacy quite a lot. We can't expect people in the street to have the awareness and the ability to understand the threat. But if the designers community would actually take into account and physically build a little bit of privacy by design in the apps and start thinking or perhaps developing something that actually makes us a little bit less 
vulnerable and less exposed attributes. I don't know what it is. I let 2017. Yeah, that that feels like a a timely thing to be considering. Um, I mean, this there were signs, I think, that people were starting to take it seriously within, say, the smartphone world this year, um, but with rather different approaches. I mean, if you look at the way Apple came out and tried to position themselves and the iPhone as being the device which um, was where, where privacy was built in by design. Um, and then you look at the approach of, say, someone like BlackBerry, where they actually had their whole branding for their big flagship launch of the Priv, um, which they described as being um, the privilege of privacy, uh, taking the kind of opposite approach that this is a, a premium feature now that you need to pay for as a special edition that actually you can use that particular device without having to worry about your data falling into the hands of someone uh, that you wouldn't want to have it. So it feels like that there's an opportunity out there for someone to really establish themselves over the next year or so as being the champion of privacy by design. Yeah. And, and what about you, Marek? What would you, your uh, big wish for 2017 be? Well, I've been thinking a fair amount about methods over the, the last little while and looking ahead to, for instance, the events that we might run uh, in 2017 and some of the, the topics that we might cover on these podcasts and really thinking about where um, could we focus our attention to help the industry improve their methods. And the one thing which I keep coming back to is something which we touched on earlier in the podcast, this sense of embracing a much wider range of talents and backgrounds uh, within digital industry. And if you look, for instance, at what's happening with some of the companies that are pioneering these voice assistants and how they're turning uh, to those people with backgrounds in things like animation or screenwriting, uh, I think we need to see a great deal more of that. So I'd love to see some more initiatives. And I'm hoping that you know, with what we're doing with MEX, we can play a role in this. Some more initiatives to really try and make that tangible, to get beyond just the conceptual, you know, this would be a nice thing to do, and actually to start to find some tangible ways to encourage dialogue between people from those kind of different creative backgrounds, maybe from the world of craft and arts and, and other aspects of design, uh, and bringing them into conversations with people who are working within digital and helping to establish those kind of shared vocabularies which actually enable interesting new things to happen by bringing together those people with different backgrounds and, and different kind of talents. I mean, time and again, you know, we have seen um, within the MEX community with the podcasts that we've done, with the conferences that we've done over the last year or so, that the best things, the most interesting things happen when you bring together the people with the most diverse backgrounds. Uh, and if we can see more of that within 2017 and, and within digital industry, uh, I think um, we'll get to a, a better place by this time next year. Absolutely. I think that sounds like a, a, a very good ambition and, and I suspect one that um, has a lot of promise. Well, fingers crossed. Um, but it's certainly been a, a fascinating year to be 
you know, talking about these things. And it's been, you know, wonderful to be able to share with, with you and, and Patrizia over this year with all of these different developments that we've seen and, you know, all of the conversations which have come out of the, the podcasts and uh, the conference which we ran in London. So I'll be looking forward to, to more of it in the next year or so. Absolutely. Me too. Likewise. Great. Well, we should wish all of our listeners a very happy new year. We hope you have enjoyed uh, the podcasts um, over the last, um, well, I guess coming on for nearly 11 months now. We will be back, of course, in 2017 with many more. Uh, but do please stay in touch. You can reach us on Twitter at MexFeed uh, or email us designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. We love to hear your feedback and comments, so do please stay in touch. Well, that's it for this edition. Don't forget the challenge set by Patrizia. We'd really love to hear from you with examples of wearable technology which we can get genuinely excited about. Send us a tweet. It's at MexFeed on Twitter. Or drop us an email. DesignTalk at MobileUserExperience.com There's show notes linking to everything we talked about in the podcast and linking to a full archive of all our previous episodes in the podcast section at MobileUserExperience.com Thanks for listening. Goodbye.